good morning, and again, welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato. Our first panel today is going to be on the topic of creating harmony in our financial markets, uh, finding that appropriate balance between government and markets in regulating financial instruments and institutions. Uh, our panelists will explore this balance as well as exploring the relative roles of government and markets in creating the financial crisis. Uh, there are extended bios in your packets, so I'm only going to give a very brief introduction to each speaker. Uh, our first speaker this morning will be Zaini Mitten Beddoes. Zaini is U.S. economics editor for The Economist. Prior to covering the U.S. economy for The Economist, she covered emerging markets from The Economist's London office. Uh, Given the U.S.'s current fiscal situation, I have to imagine that covering the U.S. is starting to feel like covering an emerging market. Uh, Zaini, welcome to the podium. Thank you. Good morning. Um, First of all, congratulations to Cato for managing to coin a new phrase in a uh, much overwritten about subject. This was the first time I'd seen, I think Jim Dorn was the first person to coin this phrase, creating financial harmony. Um, When I first read it, I wasn't quite sure what it meant. So I did what any right-thinking person does at the beginning of the 21st century, and I Googled it. And if you look up financial harmony on Google, you will find a lot of marital and personal advice. (laughs) Useful tips, like to create financial harmony, don't hide your spending habits from your spouse. I assume this is not what Jim Dorn meant. But it did actually beg a more serious question, which is what do we mean by financial harmony in a macroeconomic context? Does it mean prizing innovation or stability, the absence of crises or the efficient intermediation of credit? It's tempting, of course, to answer all of the above. And given we are where we are today, there probably is some improvement, room for improvement on all fronts. But it seems to me that there are real trade-offs involved in financial reform. And where you stand on those trade-offs determines the appropriate role of government versus the markets. If you dramatically raise capital requirements, for example, you may reduce the odds of crises, but likely at the expense of costlier borrowing. Since financial crises often follow bouts of innovation... If you try to control innovation, you may give the illusion of short-term stability, but at the price of less financial development, and in the end, I would submit, slower productivity growth and less prosperity. So the first difficulty is trying to work out or get agreement on exactly what you want to achieve in in getting financial harmony. The second second difficulty depends on what factors you think believe were most important in causing this crisis. If you believe that deregulation and inadequate supervision were the primary causes of the mess, then you focus on the need for more stringent rules and closer oversight. If, by contrast, you put more weight on policy errors, whether loose monetary conditions or the subsidization of leverage, you see less to be gained and more to be lost from a reform focused too heavily on regulation. And third, the right route to financial harmony also depends on where you start from. And I would submit we begin from a position where the balance between government and markets has substantially shifted. Finance has long been subject to greater government involvement than other areas of the economy. And with good reason, finance is special, both in its predisposition to booms, its vulnerability to panics, and its ability to wreak havoc on the rest of the economy. But over the past year or year and a half, we've taken a great leap towards government, with intervention not just in terms of dramatical fiscal and monetary loosening, but huge financial support for individual institutions. Now, given the scale of the collapse and the risks attendant, I would submit that much of that intervention, not all of it, but much of it was appropriate. But in its aftermath, we have a world where global financial markets are swaddled in a multi-trillion dollar cocoon of explicit and contingent public support, where the perimeter of too-big-to-fail institutions has been extended and the guarantees behind them have been strengthened. 
No one's happy with this balance, but the public sector's success at stabilising the crisis has, I would submit, at least in the public debate, tipped the direction of reform momentum towards government. Policy priorities, as Alan said earlier, are ultimately driven by political priorities, and the popular narrative now blames this crisis squarely on Wall Street. Large majorities in opinion polls pin most of the blame for the crisis on bankers, their risky lending practices, their newfangled products. Financial innovation is broadly seen as a source of fat profits for insiders, but fragility and instability for the broader economy. Amongst policymakers, the debate is more nuanced. The standard list of causes of the crisis includes factors beyond finance. The macroeconomic backdrop, for example, the asset boom, the world of global imbalances, where high savings in the rest of the world push down long-term interest rates, are always mentioned. But while macroeconomics gets a mention, the focus, both domestic and internationally, has been on addressing the failures within financial markets themselves. The G20 group, the Obama administration, and indeed the US Congress regard the main route to safer finance as being through improved regulation and better supervision. And this broad agenda, in fact, has an enormous consistency in its regulatory remedies. The components are pretty well known now. The idea is to extend the perimeter of financial regulation to the non-bank financial sector, to complement the supervision of individual institutions with systemic oversight, to make institutions, especially systemically important ones, more resilient with higher capital requirements, to reduce the risk of sudden losses of liquidity by, for example, encouraging derivatives onto exchanges, and by putting in place the framework to allow the orderly demise of systemically important institutions. Now, judged narrowly in terms of fixing the, quote, failures of modern finance, this agenda skillfully optimizes some of the trade-offs. It does tackle some of the weaknesses that we found during this crisis. Putting derivatives on exchanges and through clearinghouses, for instance, does mitigate some of the fear of counterparty risk that prompted liquidity to evaporate. But my worry is that it's not that this agenda is entirely misguided, but that simply that it will not be enough. I think it's insufficient more than misguided, and there are three reasons for that. Firstly, I think it's based on a partial analysis of the causes of the crisis. Secondly, it's based on an excessive faith in government supervision. And thirdly, it contains a complacent attitude on how much the government's response to this crisis has changed the nature of the cleanup. Let's start with the government's response. It seems to me quite clear that by upping the government intervention, we've plainly increased the moral hazard in the system. The universe of systemically important institutions has been increased, and the government backstock behind them has become more explicit. Disagreement on how to deal with this is one of the rare areas of dispute between regulators. On the one side, the Obama administration's response is that these behemoths demand closer supervision and should pay higher capital charges in return for their government guarantee. The other side of the debate, epitomized by Paul Volcker here in the US and Mervyn King in Britain, is that institutions that are too big to fail are simply too big. Thus, the mitigation of systemic risk requires paring back giant global banks, perhaps by hiving off riskier proprietary trading from stodgier deposit-taking and loan-making. This argument focuses on trade-offs, what would be the costs in terms of efficiency foregone. It also focuses on practicalities, which bits of bank would become utilities and which would be casinos. But it deflects, I think, attention from the broader lesson of the past year or two, which is that our definition of what is systemically important is elastic. Two years ago, no one or few would have regarded Bear Stearns as a firm that was too big to fail. Probably not AIG either. And breaking up the big banks may mitigate that problem of too big to fail, but I don't think it will be a, it will be a panacea because when the next crisis comes, the next definition of systemically too interconnected will be different. So rather than try to clear, draw impossibly clear lines, 
between what's systemically important and what's not. I think we should focus on measures such as, for example, the greater use of mandatory cushions of debt that can be converted into equity that render all financial firms more resilient to failure. My second worry is that the faith in supervision and regulation on which today's reform agenda is based. The ideas on the table have merit, but what makes us so confident, for example, that a systemic risk regulator would actually head off a new crisis when regulators, central bankers, and the entire policy community missed the last one? Minimizing systemic risk is a laudable goal, but as yet, we can barely define it, let alone measure it. More important, today's confidence in regulation ignores the lessons of history. Modern deregulated finance didn't evolve in a vacuum. It evolved in response to the incentives created by earlier regulations. Bankers created structured investment vehicles and other off-balance sheet vehicles to get around today's capital requirements. When we have new regulation, the same thing will happen again. Regulatory arbitrage will occur as long as there are financial regulations, and for as long as financiers are paid multiples of what regulators earn, they're likely to be one or more steps ahead. That reality points to a further concern, that while the policy debate has been focused heavily on how to improve private sector incentives, there's been far less discussion on how to ensure that regulators do a better job. Finally, I fear that today's reform debate is too narrowly focused. Whether it's because the popular post-blame Wall Street narrative has become dominant, or whether it's because the regulatory agenda is the easiest to implement, the post-crisis discussion has really focused on regulation and supervision. But just as finance evolved in response to regulatory incentives, so it was influenced by macroeconomic conditions and deeper distortions caused especially by government tax policy. There's no doubt that government policy decisions, for example China's refusal to allow the yuan to appreciate, exacerbated global macroeconomic imbalances. And there's no doubt in my mind that the tax treatment of debt in most Western economies implies a big artificial bias towards leverage. Dealing with these big underlying distortions will be far harder than rewriting the supervisory rulebook. But until we do, it seems to me that the search for financial harmony will be chaotic. Thank you. Thank you, Zadie. Our next speaker will be George Malone. George is a former editor and columnist for the Wall Street Journal, where he was deputy editor international, responsible for the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal and the Asian Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much. Uh, Alan Meltzer referred to the Volcker exceptionalism, uh, Volcker being the only Federal Reserve chairman who actually defied the odds. Uh, I have a little vignette, which is in my book, uh, The Great Money Binge. Uh, when Volcker uh, was given the job of Federal Reserve chairman, he uh, invited Bob Bartley, the editor of the Wall Street Journal, and me, his deputy, to have lunch at the Fed, New York Fed. And during that lunch, he said, uh, when there's blood all over the floor, are you guys going to support me? And I held up my hand first before Bob even had a chance, even though he was my boss. And uh, there was blood all over the floor. The Latin American uh, debtors went into the tank. The farmers went into the tank. There was a lot of blood. And we did support him. Uh, so I'm very proud of that, that we actually did. Well, as to this uh, agenda we have here today, I have the feeling that the title for this session was drafted uh, by the folks at Cato somewhat with tongue-in-cheek. Uh, 
if there is a, a <clears throat> if there is a role due for the government to play in restoring financial harmony, it would have to be quite different from the role Washington has played in creating financial chaos. But the chances at this point that Washington will reverse its past practices and quietly withdraw from the market uh, for, for, to the sidelines so that the markets can make necessary corrections seem to be quite slim. It is the nature of governments to first interfere with market forces and then make the problem worse by addressing the resulting confusions and dislocations <clears throat> by interfering still more. The relative interferences began over a decade ago when Congress and the Clinton administration began forcing banks to make highly risky loans to advance home ownership for Americans whose ability to afford homes and pay off mortgages was marginal. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac became the receptacle for most of these dubious loans and folded them into mortgage-backed securities of equally dubious quality. The credit bubble created by the Fed in the early part of this decade <clears throat> provided an environment and further irresponsible lending on a massive scale, and eventually it all came crashing down with a, a freeze-up in the $7.6 trillion mortgage-backed securities market, a global market, huge, that left several large players like Lehman and Bear Stearns insolvent. <clears throat> the government's response to last year's crisis was to double down with a massive bailout of the banking industry and a conversion of the Federal Reserve into a life support system. The federal government now effectively controls Citicorp and owns a piece of some 600 other banks, <clears throat> financial institutions, by virtue of the TARP bailout. Fannie and Freddie were put into conservatorship last August, and, uh, which means that they are now effectively nationalized and their losses have been transferred to the taxpayers. There will be more losses to come. By some estimates, about 90% of home mortgages outstanding are either directly or indirectly in the hands of the government now. The Federal Reserve will soon own a trillion dollars worth of tainted mortgage-backed securities, along with billions of dollars of other types of assets new to its books. <clears throat> As a result of the bailouts of AIG, the commercial paper industry, and other entities, it is no longer even a quasi, and the Fed is no longer even a quasi-independent body as it was when it was founded in 1913. It is now simply another arm of the state. The Fed and the Treasury acting together exercise control over the financial sector to a degree unprecedented in history. Meanwhile, the Congress and the Obama administration are piling up federal budget deficits to a degree heretofore unknown. Even in terms of the cash flow accounting that makes no allowance for contingent liabilities like Medicare or off-budget agencies, 
the U.S. government's future, future obligations are estimated by economist John Williams, who runs a blog called Shadow Government Statistics, at $75 trillion. Uh, that may be conservative, who knows. Um, but it is more than six times the nation's total production of goods and services. The only answer the Fed has for this vast spasm of profligacy is to keep printing more and more greenbacks, thereby courting ruinous inflation or, at best, paralyzing stagflation. Of course, we all know that the government is not going to get out of the financial sector. It is, in fact, digging itself in deeper and deeper. Our best hope is that now that the Fed and Treasury are piloting the craft, they will find some way to avoid a crash. I'm not very optimistic about that prospect. Ben Bernanke and Timothy Geithner are trying to micromanage what economists and engineers, what Hayekian economists and engineers call a complex system. I doubt that either of these two or anyone else, no matter how bright, are up to the task of managing anything as complex as the U.S. financial system with it, without bending it so far out of shape that it no longer serves its basic function of financing private sector economic growth. When it ceases to do that, we have socialism and all the stagna stagnation socialism implies. <clears throat> Let's look at the Fed over the last year. It has gone through a revolutionary change as Professor James Hamilton of the University of California at San Diego wrote in his Econ Browser blog on March 29, quote, the new Fed balance sheet re represents a fundamental transformation of the role of the central bank. The whole idea behind open market operations is to make the process of creating new money completely separate from the decision of who receives any fiscal transfer. In the traditional open market operation, the Fed buys or sells an existing treasury, ob treasury obligations for the same price anyone else would pay for the security. As a result, the operation itself does not involve any net transfer of wealth between the Fed and the private sector. The philosophy is that the Fed should base its decisions on economy-wide conditions and leave it entirely up to the market or fiscal authorities to determine where those funds are get allocated. The philosophy behind the pullulating new Fed facilities is precisely the opposite. I'm still quoting uh, Professor Hamilton of that traditional concept. The whole purpose of these facilities is to redirect capital to specific perceived priorities. And he writes, I am uncomfortable on a general level with the suggestion that unelected Fed officials are better able to make such decisions than private investors who put their own capital where they think it will gain the highest reward. Let me enlarge a little, enlarge a little bit on Professor Hamilton's point. As economist Ann Lee suggested in the Wall Street Journal on October 16th, 
what the Fed and Treasury have <clears throat> created is a machine for financing government de deficits at the expense of the private economy, and particularly the new small and medium-sized businesses that generate most of the nation's jobs. A spendthrift Congress running a $1.4 trillion deficit and not counting the millions of off-budget losses, guarantees, and other obligations, is getting cheap financing from banks because of the pressure from the Fed on its roughly 7,000 member banks to minimize risk. The banks can borrow in the Fed funds market for practically nothing and buy treasuries, officially designated as risk-free, at 3% or more. Why should they take the risks of lending to private business when they can earn as much, <clears throat> earn 3% at no risk and satisfy their basic, <clears throat> their uh, basal risk-based capital rules? You don't even have to count treasuries as an asset in meeting your risk-based capital requirements. As a result, the government grows and grows and grows. The private sector starves and starves. Is this the way to run a financial system? Well, it seems to be the way when the Fed and the Treasury collude in that endeavor now that they have the power to work their will on private banks. And as for picking winners, look what the Fed has on its, what the Fed has on its balance sheet. It will soon have a trillion dollars or more of mortgage-backed securities acquired mainly to keep Fannie and Freddie afloat and hold down mortgage rates. The Fed doesn't list maturity dates on this paper, so it can be presumed that the Fed plans to build to hold it a while. It has over 400 million in other general agency debt. I'm sorry, over 100 million billion in uh, other federal agency debt, which means that it is a big supplier of credit through that process to the U.S. Treasury. <clears throat> In all, there's not much in this mix for Joe the plumber, who has a uh, small business somewhere in Pennsylvania, and uh, he's the guy who actually employs people, and the, the millions of Joe the plumbers are the people who actually grow this economy. Small businesses, people who innovate, well, they're having difficulty getting credit. <clears throat> The huge expansion of the Fed's balance sheet that results from agency debt and its massive purchases of mortgage-backed securities has resulted from the Fed and the Treasury's improvisation to deal with the financial crisis. As federal entities, these two were under rather considerable obligation to clean up the mess that federal policies had made in the first place, <clears throat> the mess that had its origins in the federal requirements during the Clinton administration that banks make subprime loans. <clears throat> because the administration – so what we have today is government-managed credit. Ben Bernanke said last spring that the Fed was trying to manage its balance sheet in a way that would avoid credit risk and credit allocation. But obviously it hasn't succeeded very well in avoiding credit allocation. Uh, so what should we do next? 
Uh, well, it's very hard to uh, decide what we should do next or to come up with any good recommendations. Fanny and Freddie probably should be liquidated if that is possible, but I don't think that's going to happen. What role for the market? Well, don't worry about the market. It always works one way or another. It works under free market capitalism and it works under socialism. The only difference is that in the first case it yields economic growth and prosperity. In the second, it yields perverse incentives and stagnation. We have been choosing the latter over the last year, but I still have hope that the country can change course before it is too late. Thank you. Thank you, George. Uh, our third speaker is going to be uh, Peter Wallison with the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Peter is the Arthur F. Burns Fellow in Financial Policy Studies. Uh, during the Reagan administration, he served as both General Counsel of the Treasury and his White House Counsel. He is currently also a member of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. Peter? Thanks very much, Mark. It's really a pleasure to be here and uh, have an opportunity to share uh, the stage, particularly with George Malone, who I've admired for many, many years in his writings, uh, but never had a chance to meet until today. So this, this was really an inducement for me to come and take someone else's place and, and listen also to my colleague at uh, AEI, Alan Meltzer, who is uh, a mentor of mine and a, and a wonderful friend. Um, I'm going to apologize here at the beginning because in what I'm going to uh, present to you uh, contains some numbers, and I didn't have time to get them into the hands of the Cato people so they could be put up on a screen or handed out to you, but I'll try to keep them as simple as, as possible. Um, I am a member of, uh, as uh, Mark suggested, I'm a member of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. Uh, which was appointed by Congress to look into the causes of the financial crisis. Uh, we have a deadline of reporting of um, middle of December of 2010. Uh, if, if you notice that Congress is already legislating without listening to us, you get a sense of the pathologies uh, that govern things in Washington. Uh, but we will report eventually in 2010, and, and I have a fairly good idea of what we are likely to say, and it's going to be far different, I hope and believe, uh, from what Congress uh, is likely to, or at least will be attempting to do in the next few weeks. Now, I have to say um, that I will follow the evidence wherever it leads here. Uh, that is my responsibility, and I will do it, but... I have been studying the housing policies of the United States now for the last 10 or 11 years at the American Enterprise Institute, particularly Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and I have some conclusions about what actually has caused this financial crisis. Now, if you read the newspapers, I gather you do, you listen to um, uh, watch television, you have learned two things. One, that there is a conventional wisdom about what caused the crisis, and that is lack of regulation or insufficient regulation of our financial system. Um, if you listen to um, the administration, you hear just about the same thing, and the proposals that they have made to Congress are based on that idea, that there was insufficient regulation, starting with mortgage brokers at the lowest originating level and really up through 
our largest financial institutions. I want to present some numbers to you which raise doubts about that idea, and uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. Um, there are in our economy today 26 million, 26 million subprime or Alt-A, which means other non-prime, poor quality mortgages. 26 million. That's 47% of all the mortgages in the United States today. Now, of those mortgages, 6.5 million, this is an important number, so I'd like you to try to keep it in mind. 6.5 million are what are called high interest rate subprime. And the reason it's important is that every time you see a government report, say from the Fed or from the controller of the currency or anyone else, that's what they focus on. That's the number, six and a half million. And that's an important number, too, because a lot of planning was done by many, many people on the idea that there were only six and a half million subprime and all-day mortgages in our, in our system. But what everyone has missed up to now is that there are a lot of subprime mortgages, bad mortgages, that are not high interest rate. They were made by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They were made by FHA. They were made by the, the largest banks in our country, which are still holding them, under something called the Community Reinvestment Act, which required them to make these mortgages if they wanted to get approval from the Fed for expansions of various kinds. So the number is not six and a half million, as the Fed will repeat each time a governor makes a speech, but 25 million mortgages. That changes entirely the facts on which we are basing our policies. Now, where are those mortgages? I won't give you a, a, a lot of detailed numbers, but I'll tell you that 18 million of those mortgages out of the 25 are on the balance sheets of government agencies like Fannie and Freddie and FHA or those big banks. So two-thirds of all the mortgages, all the bad mortgages in our, in our economy are held by either government agencies or by organizations that were required to uh, hold them, make them, in order to get approvals from the government for expansions and things like that. So two-thirds are there. Now, what does that mean? First of all, it means that the government created the demand for these bad mortgages. It's not that these poor I'm not blaming them. I'm not, I'm not even um, supporting them. I'm just saying the, the people at the lower level of the origination process, that is your mortgage, mortgage brokers, uh, were simply, they, it's not that they were trying to make predatory loans. They were told, if you make these loans, there is a buyer. And in our economy, if there's, a, if there's demand, there's a supply. And the government created the demand uh, and people at the origination level in our economy supplied what the government wanted. So it's not a question of insufficient regulation. The problem is the government was creating the demand for these mortgages. Now, what, what do these mortgages do? In 2007, when the bubble came to a halt, these mortgages started to default. And the reason they weren't defaulting before is that as long as prices for homes were rising, you could always... Uh, refinance if you couldn't meet your obligations, uh, or you could sell the house. And, and the risks to the uh, lender were not very substantial. Um, and so 
you didn't see many defaults among the subprime or even the alt-A mortgages uh, for, for that period. But when housing prices finally topped out and started to decline in 2007, then the defaults came in. And what happened when the defaults came in is that a number of people realized that the AAA mortgage-backed securities that they were holding were not really AAA. Um, and, the, and the investors left the market. The investors left the asset-backed market. And when they left the market, it collapsed. And that created great doubt about the solvency of all of the financial institutions around the world and in the United States who are holding mortgage-backed securities. What did that mean? That meant that Bear Stearns would fail. It meant eventually that Lehman Brothers would fail. It meant that AIG couldn't meet its obligations. And of course, it meant Fannie and Freddie were insolvent. They held something like 9 million of these mortgages, which will eventually, uh, not all of them will fail, but large numbers will fail. And that will cost the American taxpayers 200 to $400 billion when it's all over. So what created the collapse? It was the, the, the collapse of the value of these enormous number, 47% of all mortgages in our economy, of subprime mortgages. So what this shows is that the administ- at least as far as I know today, and as I say, if the evidence in the Financial Inquiry Commission says other things, points in other directions, I'm willing to follow it. But what I believe today is that the administration's diagnosis of the problem is incorrect. It is not a problem of insufficient regulation. It is a problem of the government interfering with the allocation of capital, in particular trying to force capital into the housing business in the United States, distorting private sector decision-making, reducing the quality of the mortgages that uh, we have in our system. And if we, we are looking for a way um, to uh, get the, uh, a, a policy decision that will, cha- that will prevent another crisis, we don't have to impose controls on not only the banks, but all of the non-bank financial institutions the administration wants to control and here we're talking about bank holding companies, insurance companies, hedge funds, securities firms, many, many others. All we have to do is get the government out of the business of forcing money into the housing business. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, our finer sp- Final speaker is uh, Ben Steele. Ben is a senior fellow and director of international economics at the Council of Foreign Relations. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Alan Meltzer, at the end of his presentation, uh, made reference several times to the the recent book by uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff. Uh, and I'm going to take this book uh, as the starting point for, for my comments. The, this, the book is entitled, This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly. And, of course, the meaning of the title is that uh, this time is most certainly not different. Um, and uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff uh, emphasize that if you look back over uh, eight centuries of financial crises, you find one uh, common theme in every single one of them, and they identify that as excessive debt accumulation. 
Um, now, if, if you look at the public commentary focused on the crisis, um, this is widely recognized that excessive debt clearly did play a, a role in the crisis, excessive um, household debt, excessive uh, corporate debt, particularly in the financial sector. But the focus in terms of um, uh, regulatory reform has been on new government interventions to constrain the public's natural predilection to accumulate debt. There's been a lot less written about existing government policy that is explicitly uh, uh, designed uh, or in some cases perhaps unconsciously uh, designed um, with the uh, effect of uh, encouraging massively the buildup of debt. And I'm going to focus on two areas in particular that I don't think have been given en enough attention, uh, fiscal policy and in particular in that area taxation policy and uh, second uh, monetary policy. With regard to uh, fiscal policy, um, I think it's important to, to recognize that uh, Peter talked about the um, uh, the, the housing sector. Uh, full mortgage interest uh, tax deductibility uh, gives people an enormous incentive um, to uh, leverage uh, the purchase of much larger homes uh, than they need. And then uh, after that, home equity loan interest deductibility gives them a further incentive um, to leverage their consumption by drawing down on what limited equity they had in their homes and contributes enormously to financial stability. Now, this is fairly widely known, but what's much less discussed is the um, uh, question of corporate taxation and how that has influenced corporate behavior, and I actually think that's much more important. The IMF very recently introduced um, uh, a study on uh, corporate taxation policy around the world and, and um, uh, came up with three conclusions that I, I found very notable. They said, um, first of all, the empirical evidence suggests that tax distortions have caused leverage to be substantially higher than it would have been under a neutral tax system. Uh, second, that taxation significantly affects corporate financial structure. And third, that corporate-level tax biases favoring debt finance, including in the financial sector, are pervasive, often large, and hard to justify given the potential impact on financial stability. Let me put some hard numbers on this which I get from the uh, <clears throat> Congressional Budget Office, excuse me, <clears throat> a 2005 study by the uh, Congressional Budget Office looked at the effective marginal tax rate that uh, U.S. companies face for equity finance investments and debt financed investments. And they found that for a typical equity-financed uh, corporate investment in the United States, the effective marginal tax rate was 36%. For the equivalent uh, investment financed with debt, the effective marginal tax rate was negative 6%. That's a 42 percentage point 
differential. Where does that come from? Well, for debt-financed investments, we have things like uh, interest um, uh, deductibility, accelerated uh, uh, amortization, uh, etc. There's a long list of things that um, uh, uh, lead to this huge gap. But I find it rather remarkable that when we have such ferocious debates about the impact on the economy, for example, of raising the top marginal tax rate from, say, 35% to 39%, there's almost no discussion of this 42 percent uh, gap in, the, in the, the, the tax code between the uh, rate for uh, equity finance investments and debt finance investments. And what, what um, uh, effect uh, does this have? And I want to focus particularly on the financial sector. Um, in a standard MBA class, um, we all learn uh, about the so-called uh, Modigliani-Miller theorem. Uh, the formal uh, name of which is the capital structure irrelevance principle. And what Modigliani and Miller say is in the the absence of any uh, distortions from policy, uh, companies will actually be indifferent to whether they finance their investments through equity or debt. Now, think about uh, financial institutions in particular. Are they indifferent between equity and debt-financed investments? Uh, Not at all. And why do we have such ferocious debates about uh, capital adequacy standards for for banks? It's because um, equity costs them so much more than debt finance investments because of the tax code. Uh, Senior executives at banks become apoplectic when it's suggested that they should finance more of their investments using equity rather than uh, debt. Now, what effect does this have on the way the financial system works? Well, consider the whole question of securitization, which has grown enormously in recent years. The focus on government policy over the past year in particular has been to try to support and subsidize securitization activity to try to bring it back to the levels that it was at the top of the boom. I think we should be asking why we were at those levels to begin with, and the tax code gives us at least part of the answer. If a bank is to hold a loan on its books, it has to have very expensive uh, equity behind it to support it. If, on the other hand, they bundle up that loan with other loans and throw it out the door, distribute it, sell it off to investors who don't bear Um, uh, this burden imposed by the tax code and the regulatory code, the capital adequacy code, which is built on the the tax code, then they don't face um, uh, these disadvantages. So I think we really do have to ask whether we've experienced excessive levels of securitization driven uh, specifically uh, by perversions in the tax code. Now, how about uh, monetary policy? Well, consider the way the um, uh, international uh, uh, dollar-based uh, system currently works. Um, I, I like to cite one of my fam- favorite uh, economists of the previous century, the primary economic advisor to French President Charles de Gaulle, who gave this beautiful uh, analogy of how the dollar-based system works. He said, if I had an arrangement with, with my tailor whereby for every Uh, a suit I bought from him, he immediately gave me all my money back in the form of a loan, I would have no objection whatsoever to buying many more suits from him. And he argued, 
uh, that that was the way the international monetary system worked. The, the U.S. Uh, sent dollars abroad most recently to its Chinese tailor. The Chinese tailor immediately gave the dollar back in the form of a very low interest rate loan, which was processed through our financial system to create more and more credit throughout the um, uh, economy, and this naturally produced uh, a credit bubble. Now, what's the response of the Federal Reserve? Well, Ben Bernanke has uh, argued that there's nothing a central bank can or should do about this. This is uh, a result of what he called a global savings glut. I would point out that if we had been on something like a classical gold standard, this would have been completely impossible. Impossible. Imagine how this would have worked under a classical gold standard, what we had up until 1914. The U.S. would have um, uh, spent a dollar abroad. Instead of that dollar, dollar coming back into our financial system, it would have been redeemed in the United States for gold. The U.S. gold stock would have declined, and monetary policy would have had to have been uh, tightened in order to attract the gold back and to reduce uh, burgeoning global imbalances. So the system would have worked entirely um, uh, different. But of course, the philosophy of central banking, not just today, but even going back to the 1920s, um, has been one of focusing on this whole area of price stability, picking some price index and trying to uh, stabilize it. And I'm really struck by the parallels uh, between uh, the uh, current decade in terms of monetary policy leading up um, uh, to the Great Crash uh, last year and monetary policy in the 1920s leading up to the crash in 1929. And I have this beautiful quote from a 1937 text by three economists named Phillips McDonald. Manus and Nelson, not household names. The book is called Banking and the Business Cycle, a Study of the Great Depression in the United States. And they observe uh, the behavior of the price level from 1922 to 1929 serves to show the fallaciousness of the cruder form of monetary explanation of the business cycle. As in the view of the adherence of that theory, depression will not ensue if the price level is stable. And the futility of price level stabilization as a goal of credit policy is evidenced by the fact that the end result of what was probably the greatest price stabilization experiment in history proved to be simply the greatest and worst depression. So what the Fed was doing in the 1920s, it was stabilizing a wholesale uh, price index. Today we use a consumer price index or, or core, in, core inflation. Uh, they were doing that extremely well. And at the same time, they were allowing a credit bubble to, to build up enormously in the, in, in, in the uh, economy. During the 1920s, there was enormous technological advance. There was considerable downward pressure on prices, but the Federal Reserve was unwilling to uh, accommodate it. Now, uh, what does that indicate from monetary policy going forward? It does suggest that the Federal Reserve, of course, should um, uh, pay attention to credit aggregates. This is not the same as bursting specific asset price bubbles. Uh, completely different uh, concept. But what I'd like to suggest to you in closing that is that this is not a, a, a radical idea, something outside of the Fed's remit. 
Um, I refer in particular to the famous 1977 amendment to the Federal Reserve Act, which directed the Board of Governors to, and you're all familiar with this first part, to promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. But it also directs the Fed to maintain long-run growth of monetary and credit aggregates. Interestingly enough, Ben Bernanke referred to this he made it his, the theme of his speech in 2006, and he quoted directly from uh, the act and then argued that it was effectively impossible for the Federal Reserve to uh, target monetary um, aggregates. That's why he was an inflation targeter and entirely ignored the point about credit aggregates. He did, although he quoted it, he didn't refer to it um, at all in his uh, analysis, which I find both uh, fascinating and unfortunate. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. I think we have about uh, 10 minutes for questions. Uh, let's start over here. Yes, good day. My name is Pat Kurovsky. I come from a country where there are some earthquakes. And every time there's a minor one, we applaud because that keeps the big ones away. <laughs> so when I now read Restoring Global Financial Stability, and absolutely convinced that one of the reasons we are in this crisis was because regulators wanted to take, play gods and take over risk management and interfere in the banking through the capital requirements... I wonder, is this really what we need now? Don't we, our, is our goal financial stability? Is not our goal financial flexibility so that we have a system that is not creating more and more rigidities and more regulation on this sort? This is, uh, has been a long, <laughs> a long struggle for me <laughs> because for me, uh, a system where there is no bank crisis is a system that is not taking enough risks and system that is way wrong. Thank you. One of our uh, panelists wants to address I, I might just say a couple of words about that. I, I think one point about capital standards. Uh, uh, Risk-based capital standards under the Basel I agreement did not prevent the Japanese banks from going into the tank or the American banks from going into the tank. Let me uh, add something to that, which, of course, is true. Um, but in the United States, in 1991, after the collapse of the S&L industry and at the same time about 1,600 banks failed, we adopted a law called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Improvement Act, which was hailed at the time as the law that would prevent these terrible crises from occurring again because it was such a tough regulatory law. Well, now we've got the worst banking crisis that we have ever had, right? So regulation is really not an answer. Regulation is the only answer if government is backing banks, as it is, but it is not an answer uh, when government is not backing institutions. And what the, what the administration is proposing, as I suggested earlier, is to cover all, like banks, treat like banks, like government-backed banks, all of the major financial institutions in our society. And if um, we do that, the flexibility of our economic system will be stifled, and we will be living in uh, a, something of a dark age economically because we will not have – no one will have the flexibility to take the risks that cause economic advance. 
Thank you, Peter. Uh, Bert, you had a question? Uh, Bert Ely, uh, I want to uh, commend uh, Ben Steele's comments uh, as they relate to uh, corporate taxation and securitization. They're very much in line with comments that I made at this conference uh, uh, last year and reflected later in the Cato Journal article. My question for Ben is, given uh, that I fully agree with you in your, on, the, on the relative cost of equity versus uh, debt capital and financial institutions, we have a tremendous global push on now for higher capital standards in banks or financial institutions of having even higher equity capital ratios. Um, if that comes to pass, how do you see banks and the financial markets responding to this government push for an increase in this very expensive equity capital. Uh, does this mean further growth in the shadow banking industry, which as much as anything else is a tax and regulatory arbitrage? Well, as usual, Bert, you've done a brilliant job at answering your own question. <laughs> <laughs> but I want your endorsement. I, I, I agree with you in, in, entirely. Um, uh, equity capital is clearly extremely expensive uh, for banks. To the extent that we are, in fact, able to force them to hold much more of it, we can expect more of the, the business that they normally engage in to move to other sectors of the credit allocation industry. Uh, there will be institutions that will be developed that aren't tax um, uh, disadvantaged that will provide these sort of uh, uh, functions. So we're, we're really just putting our fingers uh, in the dike, the water pressure is going to move elsewhere. I agree with you strongly. Thank you. I, uh, did we have a question up front here? Lee Whitman. Mr. Wallison, I thoroughly enjoyed your succinct exposition of the errors in conventional wisdom, but how do we change the public's understanding? Because the general level of commentary that people hear from television or radio comment, uh, um, pers personalities or what they're able to read doesn't tend to break that pattern of understanding that, oh, my goodness, what we have to do is publish those bad – punish those bad bankers. Oh, well – you know, that's the toughest problem of all in a democracy, and that is getting the information out. And when you have a, when you have a media that is focused on 24-hour news cycle and, and the reporters don't have the time to go into anything in any depth uh, and understand it, you're in this problem, and that is what, what is the simplest explanation? It's kind of an Occam's razor sort of thing. What's the absolutely simplest explanation for what happened? Well, there must have been greed. And this was not, this was not helped in our last uh, campaign, I must say, because even the Republican candidate was saying that there was greed on Wall Street, and that's why we're in this trouble. Um, as long as that, things like that are abroad, uh, people who otherwise should be sensible and understand what really happened and understand the data that underlies our problems today, as long as that is true, we will continue to have difficulty um, getting Congress to do things that make sense. The American people can understand this, but they can't understand it if they're never told. And so that's why I come and talk to things, organizations like this and meetings like this, because someone may walk away and say, you know, I heard something today that I hadn't heard before, and here's what it is. 
Um, and so I think it's up to all of us who have some knowledge of this to go around and talk about it. The Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission is supposed to do this. And I think ultimately, I, knowing the, now having met the people on the commission, including the six Democrats and the four Republicans, get that, um, the, they could do this, but Congress is acting without waiting. So it's not just a problem of the media, but the media, media uh, creates the groundwork for, for Congress to believe that they understand the problem, which they don't. We had another question here from front. Uh, yeah, Bill Ahern. I'm not an economist, which my question will probably uh, let you know. But uh, this country has had maybe 150 years with a uh, asset-based currency, and have there been other countries or civilizations which have had a much longer period of time where they have managed to avoid a uh, fiat system of currency? Who's had the longest period? Of, what civilization has had the longest period of time where it's an asset-based uh, currency? I'll take a stab at that, yeah. Um, uh, throughout history, there have been very, very few cases of, of fiat-based systems. Uh, fiat currencies were always uh, uh, temporary expedients, particularly in a, in a, in a time of war. And... Uh, that's a natural outgrowth of how the monetary system actually uh, evolved. First, uh, we all walked around with gold and silver coins. Eventually, financial institutions um, uh, came up with the, the, uh, a very clever idea of issuing uh, uh, vouchers, paper vouchers, that could be e exchangeable for the stuff. And it was much more convenient walking around with the paper vouchers than it was walking around with the, uh, the coins. Eventually, these successful institutions were nationalized. And we decided that it was a waste of society's resources to actually hold the gold and silver against which the vouchers had been issued in the, in the, in the first place. And so we slid towards a, a, a fiat system. The world has only been on such a system as a, a system as a, a conscious uh, decision since President Nixon made the conscious decision of closing the gold window in 1971. At least in principle, up to that point, the dollar was a voucher exchangeable for gold at a fixed price of $35 an ounce. Of course, it was not credible, which was why President Nixon was forced to do this. So the period that we're living in uh, now is exceptionally un unusual in human history. I think we have time for one more question, one here in the back. The gentleman waving. Uh, I'm Steve Anton at the Institute for Research on the Economics of Taxation. I've heard a couple of panelists, and I've heard rumors from the Volcker Committee that the difference between debt and equity finance needs to be addressed. You can either impose the double tax of corporate equity on the debt by disallowing a deduction for the firm for its interest expense, or you can reduce the uh, tax on capital gains, dividends, and the corporate sector to make it on a par with the debt. The CBO contention there's a negative tax rate on debt-financed investment is simply wrong. They have neglected to add in the tax on the lender. And by omitting the tax on the return on capital where it is imposed, it makes it look like there's no tax. It's not true. 
So I am hoping that you meant to reduce the double taxation on equity and not raise the tax levels on debt, because if you do that, you're going to find an implosion of the capital stock, a drop in employment and wages like we haven't seen in this recession, when only the housing sector collapsed. I certainly wasn't suggesting that uh, we should be aiming to solve this problem by raising taxes. My, sug <laughs> my suggestion was that we need to move towards a, a system that is, uh, broadly speaking, tax neutral, that does not give uh, perverse uh, incentives for um, uh, using uh, de debt uh, to support uh, uh, activities rather than uh, uh, equity. So I, I, cer I certainly uh, agree with your broad point. Well, I, I want to thank an attentive audience and thank all of our panelists. We have time for about a 10-minute break before the next panel. <clears throat>